Shut up and sit down. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. You are listening to the Quiet Part Loud podcast. This is episode 100. We finally made it, episode 100. I am so excited. I can't believe we actually did it. And in celebration of the 100th episode, I wanted to do something a little bit different. We've been talking about it for some time, and today's the day. We're going to do our first interview. Uh, on the quiet part loud, we're going to be having a guest who is a former colleague of mine, friend of mine, and someone who is uniquely placed to speak on the subjects that we're going to discuss today. Uh, his name is Jim Bryce. He is formerly video editor at the Press Association, formerly head of news and current affairs at London Live Evening Standard TV, and currently he's a visiting lecturer at the University of London Goldsmiths. Jim's been at the forefront of gathering, producing, and delivering news for over a decade, and now he's turned his efforts towards education. So I thought it would be great, and I thought he'd be the perfect person to come by and discuss the current state of news, journalism, the attacks on the media, from governments, from heads of state and around the world, and just generally get a sense of you know what he's doing with the next wave of journalism students that are coming up, and some of the things they have to face, and how the media landscape is shifting. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Jim Bryce. Hey Jim, how's it going? Absolutely fine. Good to see you again, and uh, and thanks for coming in today. Pleasure. When was the last time we saw each other? A few uh, months back? Yeah, just before Christmas, wasn't yeah, it? That's right, right. yeah, and yeah. Uh, you just taken on the new role, you were a couple of, uh, couple of months into the new role? That's right, yeah, so I just had switched from working specifically like running a news organization to um, teaching people doing teaching students and how's that going that's fine yeah I'm enjoying it hopefully they're enjoying it as well getting stuff out of it <laughs> <laughs> nice nice um so just warming up stuff you you're quite like me you're quite into your fitness but you, yeah. you take a different approach to fitness yeah you like running you like yeah. cycling and things like that yeah you did the london marathon i did yeah, this for year for the first time for yeah. the first time um how was that? That was great, actually. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, nice thing about it is that it's going to try and somebody like me would ever get to take part in an elite event. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Say, even the same event as Mel Farrow. It's exactly. fantastic. It's yeah. just, and we got all the crowds and everything. Amazing, right? Good, yeah. What was your time? Um, did four hours and seven minutes. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I was a little bit disappointed with that. Were you? Yeah, I got... I, as I always do these things, I partly overtrained, got injured, and then went to the beforehand. And oh, so then yes, I struggled. That's right. Struggled with a knee injury, so I had to do it all like heavily strapped knee. But just over know. four hours. Yeah, it was okay. I don't even know if I could do it, man. Yeah, I, I really don't know if I could do it. Last last two miles, I actually got to twenty three miles, and I was thinking, yeah, what this is this is fine, this is all fine. But then you know, because we talk about hitting the wall. Yeah, then, yeah. Then it was just the last two and a half miles. Was it really? Struggled. Really? Because they say twenty. And then it's like six miles left to go. And yeah. You hit that wall. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. this is actually the hardest part. I've done 20, but how am I going to do the last six sort of, yeah. sort of thing? Got through that. Got through 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so 16. Got yeah. That. 20 yeah. got through that. Then it was 22, 23. Around about 23. Then I was like, oh. And does that last to the finish line? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So you're just pulling yourself across the line. Yeah, yeah. 
by even. Quite a few people were stopping at the end, and then they stopped and they start running again. Mm. I, I thought, if I stop, I'm, I'm not starting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure, man. Yeah, that's stop, when I stop, it's going to be for about three or four hours. <laughs> I'm going straight to bed. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I mean, kudos for you for doing it on a bum knee as well, yeah. man. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so the reason I wanted to bring you in today, obviously. You and I have worked together in the past, yep. and you were really vital to me learning more about the news, learning about what video is, how to produce it, licensing, everything like that. And you've been in you've been in media for well over a decade, over two decades. Over two decades. Mm-hmm. So coming up from like regional broadcast to yeah. then heading up a division yeah. to then moving over and basically building out. The news and current events for the Evening Standard London Live. Mm. Now you've gone to the educational side of it. Talk to me about what that role is, because you're a visiting lecturer at London University at Goldsmith. Is and that, Goldsmith is that right? City, there's two. Yeah. And there's, there's two of them. City, 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 City University of London and Goldsmith University of London. Yeah, what I've been doing is I've been um, really taking what I've learned and um, trying to pass that on, um, but in specifically around. Well, actually, what we were doing uh, yeah. for the Press Association, which is about um, finding new ways of telling stories, how to use video on uh, online, how to get on the, the daily captions, how to get to Facebook or Twitter. Or, so it's very much like that. And what I've, been, I've tried to do is try to maybe move some of the teaching that I've been doing a bit to make sure that it properly reflects the kind of things that are going on in the place of like, say, the Evening Standard or um, Mail Online or various other organisations. So that the students really do learn, know what to expect when they kind of come out of the end looking for a job. Absolutely, they've got an idea of what that job will be. Yes, I think some of the dangers often are people talk quite theoretically, and when there's you know quite a gap between what you learn theoretically and then what you learn when you actually have to do the job. That's your reality so, versus expectation. Yes. So I've tried to make sure that you know for the teaching I've done as much to teach them. This is kind of what it's going to be like. The practicality, exactly. the real life in the business, yeah. in that world, rather yes. than the theoretical kind of, oh, it's yeah. all, you know. You need to know that. So you definitely need to know it. But there will, there's always going to be a certain amount of disconnect. Maybe disconnect's the wrong word. Just about how you apply what you know. So I've tried to, so you have to learn this. But when I've got to to do, you learn A, B, and C. But you actually really like them to do some of it. Quite a lot of C and an E, but you have to know about D as well. So all the theoretical stuff. But this is how it practically applies yeah. in real-world scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, was there a specific motivation to take you out of, say, the commercial sector for what you've been doing, you know, over the past twenty years? Yeah. Uh, and on the intro, I said over a decade, but that doesn't give you enough credit. <laughs> no, I'm older now. Is there? It, was there a specific motivation for you that said, "Let me go and try something different. Let me let me teach what I've learned." To the next generation that's coming up, was there was there a kind of a tipping point or like a, a light bulb moment or something like that? Oh, probably um, gradual tipping point. Yeah. Because what I think had particularly interested me to a certain extent at TA, but a lot more when I worked at London Live was um, what got involved in project development that Tony worked with. I think the Press Association anyway. Yeah. Because obviously we did a big huge range of things. Correct. We go from being a very fringe organisation to making a difference in multimedia organisation that were doing video and everybody. Jack of all trades, really, rather than specialization. So, so certain roles very involved in that, and with Tony, quite, and I was interested in how to train people and how to get the standards up. Of course. 
London Life, you took a lot of people from um, straight out of college, you took a lot of people also that were perhaps in schools with no particular, no particular which is very varied, but you took people with slightly different backgrounds um, who may not have had the level of training that other people had, so therefore we needed to provide more, and I found that I started to enjoy that more and more. Rather than adding like a bolt onto your existing knowledge, take from you know that that raw clay, that kind yeah. of unsculpted, and and, yeah. and kind of bring the practicality like you were talking about before. Yeah. That's really cool, and it's going well. Yeah, absolutely fine. I hope so. But I'm probably not the best. I was going to say, let, 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 let me survey the students, right? <laughs> I'm enjoying myself. Professor Bryce, right? Yeah, How's important. he doing? Yeah. yeah. Many uh, many apples on the desk in the morning. Nice. So. You've been in this for coming up on a year, yeah. doing the lecturing. Yeah. And is there any sort of plans to go back into, I guess, the quote-unquote commercial sector, like what you were doing yeah. before? Maybe. Um, at the moment, I've been concentrating on this particular year when I've had to get my skills set up. Sure. And make sure I'm doing it properly, mm-hmm. because I know how to do it. Um, but also think it's also important to stay current as well. So because the danger is if I don't work in the industry for the first two years, then they're going to be teaching me things three years after that. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm in the digital media space, and it's the same thing. You know, if you take six months out, yeah, you might as well, you know, effectively start at zero. Yeah. So, talk. You mentioned a little bit, but talk to me about the fundamentals of the course because it's really just about that practicality and turning what theoretical, like learning in a journalism mm-hmm. course has been traditionally into more of that pra- practical application with what new media looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So much so, and that's what we've. Certainly, the sort of places I've been teaching tend to move over more to make sure that that's what's happening. So I teach a combination of practical skills, like basically how to how to go out and film something, yep. how it works. Don't yep. look at it either on a small like on a handy cam or yep. shooting it on your phone. Yeah, for sure. Um, because how I see it at the time when we worked together, um, I was quite resistant to using the phone, mm. but because I was worried about the quality, correct credibility issue. And we were a few years back then, and it wasn't to the level it is now either with the quality, right? Exactly. And I think you were right to be mindful about that. I remember us looking at those big backpacks that we were going to yeah. do like the live streaming on. Yeah. Remember that stuff? That yeah. was hilarious. And now it literally is just press live on your phone and yeah. off you go, right? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So the students that you're looking at, the, the, that you're teaching, that you're seeing coming through, um, how are they truly being prepared for the shift in media? Do you feel like they get it? Do you feel like because of who they are, because of the shift in you know, what the media landscape is now, is that like a natural thing that they're acquiring a knowledge base for? Do they seem a bit sort of out of, are they still taking like, I guess what I mean is, are they still taking the fundamental principles of journalism and applying them in silo, or do they see the need to really transition into what the new media landscape is? I think they do see the need to transition into what it is. I think that one of the things I've seen, which is a slightly interesting area because you can actually work in perspective finding has been because this was our very digital family because of well they're generally they're still young because they're you know, 19 20 yeah. years old so this is what they know exactly um and they a lot of them do they've got a very good social media presence a lot of them do blog, a lot of them don't do their own blogs a lot of them do their own podcasts okay um and they have some strong page instagram and particularly instagram and obviously twitter twitter and facebook tend to be most instagram views are mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook doesn't because it's just sort of a face, you know. Yeah, the uh, all right, granddad, yeah, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but they often see interesting. They often see a bit of a 
disconnection that they feel in going into the practice, which I feel sort of always thought was a little bit strange. Not something they had to concentrate on doing a bit more than I thought they were going for. Yeah. Because I thought that they thought, well, I'm going to learn these skills which are going to be automatically transferable to what I've been doing. Yeah. And they sometimes don't quite see that. They kind of say, well, I want to learn how to be a journalist because that's going to be different. And I just been saying to them, actually, you're doing a lot of it already. What you're perhaps not necessarily doing is perhaps thinking about it in exactly the same way, yeah. or you're not doing it professionally, and so therefore you'll be required to do things in certain ways to achieve certain standards, yes. or represent a certain editorial point of view, that kind of thing, and that's what they need to learn. But often they've, they've been subconsciously doing that with their own work, but then when you kind of explain that to them, they've, they've sort of been surprised. It's almost like a paradigm shift, right? It's like, well, it's not mine, so do I do it the same way? Yeah. And actually, a lot of those skills are already transferable, and if yeah, they're yeah. just amended slightly, yeah. to, like you said, fit that editorial credibility or yeah. standard of, yeah. very pra- practically applicable. Yeah. One of the things I was wondering about is ethics, right? Yeah. And credibility. These guys have big social media platforms, mm. podcasts like you were just yeah. saying. If they come out and they've got a certain slant on their social media, mm. and then they come to work for, say, an editorial board, mm. how do they how do they establish that credibility as a legitimate journalist if they're known as Instagram with twenty thousand followers, Twitter with a certain social opinion, whatever? That changes. Yeah. So if you've got this social profile on one side, yeah. but then you've got the output from a journalistic perspective on yeah. another side. Yeah. How do you marry those things to maintain credibility? So that can be pretty difficult. Mm. I think certainly going back say four or five years, there was a big problem. Um, I think that um, without going into too much detail, I think we worked with people who would, would be very credible journalists as well. Often they meet journalists work through their own social media profiles. So journalism works perfectly fine, but their own social media profiles would often and be uh, spectacular, gory, and, de- and high detail of what they've been up to the last weekend. Yeah, yeah. So, which is often a little bit of a little bit of a problem. Yeah. I think that there's two different things. I think. Okay. I think there's people that think when you work as a say as a reporter, yeah, to do stories. I think then you will be looking to do those stories. You will probably and how you re- you have to probably be a bit more careful about your social media um, at that point because you will need to be seen to be um, not having an axe to grind particularly. If you're a commentator, then I think that's not a problem when you're writing think pieces, then I don't think that particularly matters because I think that because you are known to have a certain come from a certain viewpoint, have a certain standpoint and be expressing yourself in a certain that audience is already gonna yeah. know kind of what to expect from a flavour perspective from you. Yes. But being a reporter versus a commentator, yeah, two very different things. Yes. And this is something with social media that has got very blurred and has Correct. it is causing a lot of problems. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because more now, I think, than ever, you're being viewed as a commentator. Yeah. So it's where's this bias coming from? Yeah. What is that influ- what is that influenced by? And yeah. why should I tr- why should I trust what they're saying about this specific important topic? Yes. When I see them over here at, you know, Lanzarote Beach Party and they're, you know, or this rant and rave about a certain politician, whatever that context may be. Yeah. How do you unblur those lines? Is it possible? Or are we in such a phase now where you take it or you leave it? It's, it is very difficult, actually. Yeah. I think that there will be some kind of accommodation made through with it. So it would be, I think a good example is is the Australian Guardian writer, um, Kayla Catwell, because she is 
to see potentially future work with the associate types break up and going across to opinions in the other side of social media, mm-hmm. which then leads a lot of people who don't agree with the political to dismiss the investigative work you've done in the referendum, which I think is a, is a real problem. It just shows the lot of the quality of her journalism. I, an enormous amount of respect for her. She's very, very good at what she does. Yes. And also, she's done some stuff which is also very open about her work in Russia, which is also to be criticised. So people will go on and correct things and put and, and move the stories along. Right. Um, which I think is very open to the story. Use the social media to do that because the level of stuff they sometimes get attacked for. Sure. Sometimes the standards of traditional print media get a bit like a big head on how people um, report on on um, social platforms. For sure. Stuff, which is an, an interesting kind of. This is where the things mix and match together. Definitely. But, um, I think it's a particularly good idea if you are um, a sort of classic commentator. If you are, I don't know, PhD level sports, then people know what you're going to say. Yes. You know, you've, you've got a particular idea. You can tie into MME. I don't disagree with the political referendum because I find him sometimes funny. Often has good stories. Sometimes absolutely infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but then there's kind of the ads to biscuits. It? It, it's a little bit of Pierce Morgan for me. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, you got to trust him. You got to respect him for what he's done journalistically and from a career perspective. But sometimes he says some asinine garbage. Yeah. You're just like, come on, mate. You're clearly doing this from a clickbait perspective. Yeah. But then when he hit the nail on the head, yeah. you're like, well, he's undeniable. Yeah. So it's a really, really contrasting, polarizing type of character. And I think we're seeing more of that with yeah. the social plus journalism side and that integration. Like you said, those blurred lines. Yeah. So obviously, when you were coming in here today, I was like, I don't know anybody that is as skilled as you and experienced as you. And, you know, I'm sure you've got counterparts and colleagues out there that are, you know, that are on your level and everything like that. But, you know, from, from, a, from, yeah, yeah. from, a, from a perspective yeah. of, you know, journalism, I was reading this report and it was based on U.S. media from yeah. Pew. Yeah. Right. And they interviewed and uh, questioned broadcast execs, yeah. journalism execs mm-hmm. and really took a stance on, they asked him a question, do you see, do you think that the internet is changing the fundamental values of journalism, or would you say that journalism's fundamental values are transferring to the internet? I'd be interested in getting your perspective on this, and then I want to give you the actual number of what the U.S. media, anyways, has said about that question specifically. So, internet, is it changing journalism, or is journalism seeping into the internet discourse? Um, I think it's probably both. Okay. I think that um, the internet has definitely changed journalism definitely. Uh, because you can report in real time um, and you can report, say, a story gradually as it, as it unfolds rather than maybe necessarily in the old, good old days of waiting for the Arabs all lined up and what we want to do is get the information and then put it out there. There's still a lot of that mm-hmm. goes on. So I think that certainly the, the platform has changed the way that journalism in the same way that um, radio changed journalism in the 1930s and TV changed journalism in the 1950s. Yeah. It's, it's the same, the, the, the medium has slightly different demands. Initially, um, say, if, if you see the very first TV uh, newscast, yeah. they are radio. You just have a little little guy sits there reading a script. Just a camera pointing at somebody. Yeah, that's, that's right. It. So that's effectively using a, um, some sort of skill developed in one medium into another one. Yes. If people initially on radio started reading um, just text news stories in the newspapers effectively, mm-hmm. and of course, listening to the most people realise that's just a difficult to follow up on 
affect some people. So you don't yeah, break down people. a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So things like that. So I think the same thing with with online. People are going to consume in different ways. And as the people who are going to tend to read stories often search in a way, you read the first paragraph of something you're interested in, then you might leave it. Yeah. Because you might be reading on your way to work or yep. whatever it is. Then you might come back to it later. And yep. find that people will return and read another thing from a bit later because you think, well, that's interesting. I want to find out a bit more about that, but not now. And I think that's one of the things, isn't it? I mean, you know, attention spans. Yeah. We're so quick to have bite-sized snippets of information mm. delving into the nuance yeah. of a conversation mm. or a topic or a yeah. subject matter. Is that lost because of how we're doing news on the internet now? Um, or do you think it's to the to the individual? I think it's to the individual. I think perhaps to a certain extent that has been lost. But I also think that one of the interesting things about um, digital media I think it did almost draw that curve in a little mm. bit because I think we, you and I have both seen analytics from uh, customers who used to do content yes. for other customers. Yes. And, uh, sometimes it was fantastic and sometimes it was not quite as fantastic. 100%. But you often see what they call dwell time, things yep. about how long people stayed in a story or and, and often it would be price over it. Yeah. Or how much it didn't get read at all. Absolutely. But the difference I think was that um, say with newspapers, example the way that and they were tested were very much purely based on circulation people and customer practice people didn't dive into the newspaper because nobody's reading this story because people genuinely didn't know they couldn't tell couldn't tell that's the thing even tv news in um certain when i worked at bbc breakfast which is a long program at the time the bbc was doing quite you know commercial focused and all these were very very important couldn't tell me from doing breaking interviews until 15 minutes by 15 minute breaks. But I think your bits would then give you huge details. That's not the scope. No, it, it's just, it might have narrowed it down to say you've done three or four things. Yes. And people don't, people might have turned off at that point. Yeah. And the other thing about the um, sport bulletin, where the sport bulletin was good, it seeded less to the sport bulletin. People turned, um, went off and did other things, doing the sport bulletin in the evening. Is that right? It seemed to be, yeah. Oh, right, okay. Um, and. But then you know, sort of moved it around a bit, and then but then the sport bulletin didn't seem particularly as clear, mm. quite blunt. Whereas if we'd if we'd been online, we looked at the bits, we could have been we could have seen the take up to the second to the second, and seen that both places people didn't like the sport, and we'd seen a massive turnoff. There's no uh, there's no uh, speculation in that, right? No, yeah. you, you've got the analytics, yeah. and, and, and it's funny, right? Because increasingly, you've got more analytics on the digital platform, but people are, are saying the analytics on the digital platforms actually aren't enough. Yeah. Like they like they're always mm. clamoring for more, 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 right? Because we're mm. we're in this we're in this space now mm. where every media outlet is competing for clicks. Yeah. Which you know some may say is driving down the quality of journalism with things like clickbait, things like mm. that that are you know, more salacious or, mm. you know, you happen to draw people in one way or another and, mm. and whether or not that credibility of journalism is being compromised to mm. get those clicks in. Yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's a tough thing, but... Yeah. Although I think that actually they've got a lot better in the last few months. I think that particularly Google has really improved their algorithm. They really but have. And I think that a lot of the stuff that um, was working a few um, say like a few years ago no longer is. Yeah. yeah. So you would take the stories that would say not even have a new headline but no new information in them that's it i think they go very strangely through those advertisements since then absolutely absolutely and from not even from a journalistic point of view but from a content point of view overall mm. google are being a lot more uh strict 
on obviously duplicated content, like you said, kind of masking the same thing with a different yeah. face on it, yeah. you know, and, and really bringing you down the rankings. You're, yeah. you're, you're not as discoverable, you know, even yeah. as you were maybe three months ago yeah. in, in terms of that. And that's not even necessarily just from journalism. That's from yeah. content overall, right? Yeah. So really, really interesting. But um, so I just want to shift a little bit, right? Because we talk a little bit, well, not a little bit, we talk a lot about politics on yeah. the show. Um, I can get quite heated about that, but that's not what I want this discussion to be. What I want to talk to you about now is, again, with some of the things that we've discussed, credibility and how you kind of stand out from the crowd and things like that, fake news. Yeah. So fake news is a relatively new concept yeah. on a Western front, yeah. Western media front. This was Donald Trump's you know, kind of yeah. buzzword of 2016 yeah. and mm-hmm. so on and so forth, but this isn't new. Right, we know authoritarian regimes, governments, so on, have been using this for years. Right, Nazis did it yeah. against the Jews. Mm. Uh, we've seen the DPRK do it. Right, yeah. for any outside influence and how they're how they're viewed internally versus externally. Yeah. And with Brexit happening and with mm. the with the shift in how the EU looks yeah. and moving more towards uh, let's call it a right the right side of things. Yeah. And I don't mean right as in correct. I oh, mean yeah. right as in political spectrum. Yeah. We're seeing that in places like Poland and Spain as well. Yeah. So, with media companies competing with social media companies yeah. for things like we just talked about, ad revenue, clicks, yeah. how do we protect the credibility so that actually accusations can't just be levied on journalists while they're just trying to do their job effectively? Yeah. You know, and and how do we how do we if we can at all, do you see a way out of this competing for clicks type of scenario? I think it's tricky. I think there's a lot of different things going on at the moment. I mean, I think that to a certain extent, we can break that down a little bit. So Please. To start with, um, start with fake news, and as you say, it used to be called propaganda. Wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And it's been around since probably since whenever, since right? Since yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah going even way, way back. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, certainly, I think certainly, I think a couple of things have happened. Yeah. Different companies. First of all, it's easier now to get stuff out there without somebody perhaps perhaps questioning it and going, "Don't use that. Don't do that." That's right. Or, um, so first of all, actually, there's there's that the stuff. I think it's sometimes it's just wrong to gets out there and gets played out. Sometimes mm. it's malicious. Mm. Sometimes it's just accidental. But I think to a certain extent, that would always happen. Yeah. And I think fake news is a different concept from the malicious and the accidental fake news. I think one really good example is uh, the Dunkley fire. Now, okay. when that happened, there were lots of reports, right from the beginning, from the time, about a child being dropped from a cervical floor balcony and being pulled by people below. Right. Now, this was a lot of people said they'd seen it or they did comment on this. And this was reported pretty much verbatim for a good few weeks, maybe even months, after the Dunkley fire. But no one thought that would ever happen. Nobody's ever found any evidence that happened that. Nobody's ever come forward who actually was talking to yeah, I was the one who dropped it, or I was the one who caught it. Because it or there was or some like unattached child who could possibly <coughs> be. It's things that's never actually been substantiated. Substantiated. Probably that's kind of like an innocent fake news yeah. story, then, because of just the sheer panic and the, the horror of what's sure, going on. Sure. Sure. Stuff kind of gets out there. Um. Um, so you often, and often 
journalists sort of often term you see sometimes they quite serious and objective when you see sometimes Paddy's they're all smiles at worry and it's did that just try and sometimes temper your own sort of emotions about a situation, right? Yeah, did this really happen? Yeah. Did you really report this? Did that so we, this is a this is tricky. That's a tricky one. Yeah. And that's uh, the non malicious. That's the non malicious what you quote accidental. Yeah. But these days often it sits out there. Yeah. Um there's a really interesting one. It's just a small thread because I think sometimes perhaps open as well. So this is one that some of us have put on Twitter without trying to do anything maliciously. Is you know, one is not the round in America now for Gavin Rush, which is about um, it came from a battle between Survivor and Tifa and um, anti-fascist protesters in Portland. Oh, the Antifa. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it came out of that with the claim that people had been they were supposed to vote the first time they there would be an organised thing and they were throwing milkshakes. Yes, and it was claimed that. Now with loads of assimilants and milkshakes. I heard this. Now, now there's one one big problem with this is that uh, with this with the story is that you can't put cement in a milkshake because the one thing that stops cement setting is sugar. So in fact, if there's a big if there's a big spill of cement like on a building site or something, it's not the guys that often go to the nearest corner shop and buy all the sugar. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's so hilarious. Because it. it'll, it. it'll stop it going hard. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. So the likelihood is that somebody said that as a sarcastic joke, and that is now taken on the status of threat. And to blow it up a little yeah. bit to make something bad seem even worse, right? Exactly. If you poison somebody Antifa guy made a rather not very well thought out joke. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that is now come that is now come taking the status of truth. But the chemistry doesn't add up. Slurpier. Yeah, sloppier. Yeah, just heavier, right? <laughs> heavier. So it wouldn't really I don't think it'd make it heavier, honestly. Really? So, <laughs> okay. so that's an interesting example yes. where these days with because of the proliferation of um, online that this stuff gets out of there unchecked and yes. just explodes. And it's and there, there forever then. Yeah. Right? It's there forever. Now that's now people are second, third quoting that as if that was an absolute fact. Yes. Whereas it, it turns out that you can't do it. And it kind of goes towards like, you know, people say, if you want to find an answer to a question, you'll find it on the internet. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter what your point of view is no. or how ridiculous your point of view is. Yeah. You'll probably find somebody who's written about it and somebody who's quoted them writing about it and then it's a fact yeah. to somebody, mm. right? So those are, I guess, you know, the Antifa one mm. less so in terms of its, you know, kind of accidental or, 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 yeah. or non, you know, mm. non-dangerous side of it, because yeah. you never know if Antifa say, you know, if this claim comes out that they're putting cement in, yeah. then maybe they are putting, you know, maybe people do end up doing that yeah. and taking it one step further. I yeah. know, like, obviously in the UK, mm. we've had milkshaking as well. I yeah. can't even believe we're sitting here talking about milkshaking being an actual thing, right? Yeah, it's it's lunacy. Yeah. But I also think of it as escalation. And that's why the credibility of these stories yes. is super important because if somebody says, oh, well, you know, Nigel Farage got milkshaked, well, that can very quickly escalate into something like, obviously, cement doesn't work, mm. but bleach does, yeah. and acid would, yeah. and those things are actual things that have happened in this country. Yeah. South Africa. So we have to check those things. They have to be checked in some way, shape, or form, mm. and that's that sort of how something accidental can actually lead into yeah. something that is very detrimental. Yeah. Is there any, like, how do we put the checks back in place? Um, is, is there a way to do it, or is the cat out of the bag? And we're just down this road now, and it's on the individual to 
almost triangulate their viewpoints mm. to say, I got to do my own fact checking on this. I think it's left because of Cameron Jack, actually, yeah. because I think one of the things that he certainly surprised, surprised me as a journalist over the last, uh, say, four or five years was the way that particularly UK sports have moved from reporting to more opinion. It's a lot more editorial based, yeah, right? Okay. It's a lot more mm. I am of. Yeah, most right? tabloids now will have opinion pieces on their, or if they're, they're, they're keeping editorial points on their, as their front page slab rather than the actual story. The New York Times is doing this all the time. Mm. The, I mean, the Huffington Post is making a, a they're making a yeah. business out of opinion yeah. journalism, you know, yeah. and and again, then you're coming down this thing where people are reading opinions of facts. Yeah. Slippery slope, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a dangerous thing, man. It really is a dangerous thing. Um, and I guess if the cat's out of the bag on that, mm. and we can't fact check the people who are working for these organizations that we need mm. to fact check, yeah. when then you go to the next level of that, and you've got figures like Trump yeah. and Farage mm. and even Boris Johnson, yeah. you know, who's going to set to be leading this country in a week yeah. or so, yeah. you know, you've got these people coming out yelling fake news if they don't like something. Yeah making up their own opinions mm. opinions yeah. or just outright lying mm. and seemingly there's no consequences to this mm. but then if a journalist does it and one of these heads of state calls them out on it they get discredited yeah. to the nth degree of the world even though there may be more substance in that claim yeah. than the fake news or the lying that's going on by some of these heads of states and these foreign players who are manipulating their social yeah. media right yeah. so how does Again, maybe I'm asking the same question a hundred different ways, but how does truth find a seat at the table in in our current like situ in, in our current kind of landscape of, of public discourse? Because it seems like that's the least credible thing. If you come out and you say something is actually true, I think about these Congress people who are coming, and maybe you've got a different opinion on this. These Congress people in the states that are going down to these migrant camps. Yeah. We're seeing this stuff on video. I mean, from a you know an ex video point of view, from London Live, you know news and current affairs video, you know product, mm. you're seeing on video, yeah. right? What that's getting called nonsense, BS. Yeah. And he's like, you know, Trump's out there saying mm. they're clean, mm. they're a bit overcrowded, mm. but generally everybody's good to go. Yeah. How do we balance that table? How does truth get in there to say, yeah. no, we're not listening to this garbage anymore, yeah. or is that happening? I think that is happening. You think we're seeing a swing back? I think so. Yeah. I think that one of the problems that um, politicians um, like um, perhaps like Boris Johnson seem to have much bigger problems with this threat than Boris than um, than Trump. Yeah. Uh, because I think the problem is that people stop believing them. Yeah. And this is the, the probably the big difference. Maybe if you want to rewind it, you know, talk mentioned propaganda. Yeah. This is probably ultimately maybe if you look back on it, what the, the, the Soviet Union is yeah. because nobody believed anything. anything. Um, anything the state said was automatically assumed was wrong. Yeah. Probably some of the stuff they said, well, the stuff we actually know obviously was wrong. Well, I mean, it takes me back to Chernobyl, the TV yeah, show that's yeah, just yeah. been on, right? And, they, and, and the story they yeah. were giving the world on that. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So. Um, some of the stuff probably wasn't. It's, it's the, the result of it was that nobody believed. Yeah. Sort of thing. And this is the same with saying that uh, like Donald Trump is saying, because it doesn't take much for some of his supporters. Some of his supporter base starts to peel away, as might well happen over time. Yeah. Particularly, um, say some of the things that he said 
about job creation and don't let that situation have to happen. Absolutely. Then, then he's got a big problem because most people spend most people's day believing in real stuff. Because then the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. And all they have to do is say, well, you said that. Yeah. And it's absolutely not true. Yeah. We're looking at it. Yeah. And it's not true. Well, I think one of the things that made me, made me interested, I suppose, with Donald Trump is the um, the US steel thing, the, the steel. Yes. The six, well, the, the six new steel mills will be open. Yes, and yes. They're not. They're not. There's just no basis for that whatsever. 100%. If the, nobody thinks there are more jobs in US steel. Than, uh, and, and absolutely. Steel. And not only that, but <clears throat> things like, you know, the trade war that they're trying to do with China, you know, and, and the tariffs. And, and I saw something today that said, you know, China's growth is slowing because of the trade war that's happening and things like that. But he, again, he's playing this off like it's all good. But most people don't understand what a tariff is. Yeah. It's actually a tax on the citizen of that country rather than on, on the yeah. country that you're importing those goods from, right? Yeah. The customers suffer. Yeah. And I think that's where, going back to the credibility of the journalists, it's like you almost can't cut through mm. a 280-character thing, you know, yeah. statement by Trump that says best economy in the world, best yeah. job numbers in the world. People understand what he's saying even though it's not true rather than reading an article that says, let me break this situation down for you. 90% of the soybean production in America is failing catastrophically, and these farmers are now a month out from bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Nobody even wants to read that, right? It's, so it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. I agree with you that I think we're almost at a tipping point now mm-hmm. where it starts to swing back the other way, yeah. and that fake news will be called out for what it is, mm-hmm. and you lose all credibility, and then all you are is the boy that cried wolf. Fingers crossed that that happens. Yeah. My concern, and this is like a texter, right? From a video perspective, yeah, yeah. have you seen these deep fakes? From deep fake videos. The deep fake videos. So yeah, yeah. So so deep fakes is a term that I've become familiar with probably over the last six months, mm. seven months, something like that. And what it is is facial swapping on videos. Oh, okay. So they've they've done one. The most notable is the Mark Zuckerberg one, yeah. that they basically had him reading out, some, like he was saying something that was completely not true, right? It was, well, kind of was true. He was like, you know, we're going to take all your data and we're not going to, you know, we're going to manipulate your search results and, you know, but it was actually a speech from his desk talking about how they're going to protect privacy better, right? But these deep fakes are in version one right now. So if we can't even believe the written word and we substantiate evidence based on video, what happens when this thing gets to version five, version mm-hmm. six, and you can actually take Donald Trump saying, I've just declared war on North Korea, mm-hmm. and that's going to happen in three hours. Yeah. What do we do? Have you, have you, I mean, yeah, it's kind of a spring, like a spring on you question, because yeah. not a lot of people are familiar with these things, but they're getting very good. Yeah. Well, I think the one from a couple of years ago actually came from Country Planet, I think, which was... Uh, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah, it was just brilliant because the the animation that was done for that to make make it look realistic. Fantastic. Astonishing. I thought that was real. Yeah, I thought that was real for sure. I thought, how, how do you get the bird to put the, the wings of the bird are perfect? Perfect. Yeah, it's just brilliant. And that's it, right? So you've got that graphic design element of it, which is phenomenal. Yeah. But I think the overlay mm. of like if I had a video of you and I wanted to put on a video of you saying the worst anti-Semitic rants in the world and the biggest, you know, yeah. racist diatribe, you know, make you a horrible person. Yeah. That technology is now available. Yeah. So, again, blowing those lines, mm. 
interesting endpoint here. How do, how, do you do you have do you have any go to journalists? Do you have any people that you know categorically are? Because I know you said before when I was praising you a little bit in terms of like your knowledge on on news gathering and all of this stuff. You said there's tons of them out there. For people who might listen to the show and are feeling the same way about mainstream media, press, all of that stuff, are there a few people out there that you can name that are the ones that you would put as above board on in terms of their integrity is unquestionable? Um, I would suggest some organizations. Where would you? Okay. Uh, would look to them uh, for their work, their work. I would still say that I would say that they there would be actual news reporting that is done by better ones of the UK press which are very very good most of the people who write about the times are very good most of the people who write about the Guardian are very good yes um, obviously we know that they do political coaching down the Tories for sure. and the other Tories they are done they are done done to very high multiple level. sources fact checking everything yeah and they're done properly yes the BBC obviously gets a lot of stuff at the moment but most of the stuff there is very very well done mm. um, so you put, still put credibility in yeah, the BBC do you yeah um, in the American press, I think the actually the newspapers um, um, for the major American broadcasters are very very good. Yeah. Ironically, for being called out for fake news, they probably have played much more fast and loose with stuff than maybe journalists with newspapers. You think we're playing more loosey goosey yeah, with it? Yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot of American um, journalism which is very strange. I mean, some problems they've had is that they've always reported that there's there's a it's that they've always honoured the American political institutions. Yes. They report fairly straight to what the president says. Yes. That's actually caused the government quite a bit of trouble. Yes. Um, that's a separate thing, actually, about the use of experts and things, which has caused a lot of problems. Actually, for sure. And who is an expert? And, and how do you get qualified as an expert, right? You see all of these sort of talking heads. You know, you go to a CNN or a Fox or, you know, yeah. the obvious, you know, extremes on both of those sides. And, you know, they'll have eight talking heads yelling over yeah. each other or just throwing out their talking points. Yeah. It's like, well, what sticks and what doesn't, yeah. right? It, it's, a, it's a weird it's, one. And they say the problem with spending the last 10 years, particularly more than me in newspapers, is that we're clickbait because the PR organisation... Speak on that a little bit for me. Yeah, um, I think as working as a journalist, and you're really busy, and your editor says, say, to working in TV or radio, well, this is an interesting story. Can we, we need to have two people to debate yes. about whatever, sure. Brexit or yep. something. Um, and then you try and find people, and it's not that easy to find them, particularly if you're six lads going along to each other at a set distance to the gym Monday morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who's ready? Who's available? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Them up on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're right minded to answer the phone. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Answer an email on a Sunday afternoon. Um, unless they are absolutely desperate to come on, and then maybe you should be questioning why they're, why they're actually yeah. doing it. <laughs> Which actually is where the problem starts, because the people who often are available are people who come to things very think tankers about. Now, often the problem has been that they've got nice names like uh, I don't know, Sir Dave Brown Tanker. Maybe it's great to a taxpayers alliance. That's probably a good example. That sounds quite nice. Taxpayers alliance. Yeah. That sounds quite. Nice. Yeah. That sounds very legit, right? Very legit. Yeah. Um, whereas if they're not particularly legit, so let's say search for, for producers like low tax stations, which is absolutely fine. Sure. Yeah, they've, they've got perfect examples to, to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to talk talk to them about the issues to do with tax packets. Too big on this idea is about how much tax people should pay and how should your society be set. They're good, they're good on that. But when they talk about individual things, it sounds like they're somehow sticking up for ordinary people who are not really, you know, don't pay too much tax. Being generous with them, it's not really. They're not really kind of like that. Um, 
that's only true for people who've been men because a lot of people have that superiority mm-hmm. and some of the stuff they say isn't true. Even actions to the point of some of the Barney greetings have an awful fictional Absolutely. line stuff that they put up. Sometimes that they've been getting sort of the residual to get the message across has obscured some of the actual facts of what has been been there. Definitely. Not the problems, still not the problems kind of in either end of the spectrum. So it's very hard sometimes to break down who these people actually are, what they represent and what their agenda is. Yeah. Because loads of them at the end of the day, and something we have to say as a leadership as well, at the end of the day people, there is a very small select band of people that come out and do TV or radio interviews out of a sense of public duty and the kindness of their hearts. Yes. There yes. are some, yes. <laughs> but um, the majority of them do it because they see some benefit in it. Now, what is the benefit going to be? The benefit is going to be that they see it as an opportunity to get their particular views and messages across. And I think that's something that um, media in the last 20, 10, 15 years, certainly in the UK, should have done a lot more about. Sure. Should have been at that square. It's actually been a serious problem. This is a little anecdote. A couple of years ago, um, I got uh, invited to a very nice big lunch in the British Hotel Corporation of London, where okay. all the members of Corporation of London meet journalists who've, who've done some farming. Yeah. So we all got rather roughed up by the um, some of the, the people that were there that were so badly aldermen, that was the, the kind of elected representatives of the city. Not physically roughed up. No, no. <laughs> in, 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 in the nicest possible way, politely. Everyone was sitting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Criticised over a nice lunch. Yes, yeah, pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. Chew um, on that. Yeah. But the, the point that a lot of them made was about was about Brexit. Okay. And I was saying, you know, you guys, if I set this idea of ballot and said, look, what it's worth in city institutions, it says there are, says you've got, says you've got 100 of us, 98 of us will tell you that Brexit's a bad idea. There's two people that won't. One of them, we said they're going to be a lovely job. One sure. of them because they think that they can, they're quite useful for them separating out their brand. They could get mad with it and it actually gets them tons of publicity more and brand recognition for them than um, anything else. Even though probably if you put them, you know, put them to one side and said, do you really believe it? They'd probably be the one more idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's, and then there, there is probably the other 1% who are just a bit out there. Yes. And they said, you know, the problem is, you keep choosing somebody very beautiful out of the 98, and you keep going back to these same two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, they, and they said, that's not valid. That's right. And they were saying, what you've done, you've done a big disservice about this. You know, you said, what you've done is you've not given balanced arguments about something. That's right. Because you've been so busy to put two sides of the argument, that the one side of the argument can be challenged as being demonstrably false in certain respects. Correct. This is what they said. Not that people might believe this is might be based on Brexit, might possibly disagree with that, but this is very much what these people said. Yeah. Um, so look, as soon as you get that's where you get the equivalence, and uh, then it's very difficult to tell what the truth is. My, a very nice sort of anecdote from an American uh, newspaper editor saying, "If you want to know the weather, by all means go and ask a couple of people, but but also don't look out the goddamn window." Yeah, hundred percent. Which I thought was a Great thing to absolutely. remember. Absolutely, yeah. and we and we actually speak on this um, on the show uh, because obviously you know I'm not frontline like you are or like you have been. Yeah. But what I try to tell people and what I try to relay on on this show is that you have to read the right, mm. you have to read the left, yeah. you have to read right in the middle, yeah. and then somewhere in there yeah. you'll find your truth yeah. about what the whole thing is. Yeah. Exactly. But if you're in this echo chamber, if you're in this silo of just you know confirmation bias you're never going to get a truly balanced opinion on anything and I think that goes to the point that you were talking there about you know how we do broadcast media and how they seek 
you know, uh, experts on opinions and things like that. But I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and and it's a tough one because people don't have the time to disseminate all, oftentimes. And, 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 you know, this is what Facebook makes, you know, a billion a month off of is, yeah. is feeding outrage mm-hmm. and just saying, we've seen you click on this and this is an outrage article, so we'll feed you more mm-hmm. of that. And you never break out to see if there's an alternate point of view on it. And it's really mm-hmm. dangerous, you know. But again, we have to maintain or mm-hmm. we or the industry have to maintain this level of credibility. Mm-hmm. And I, I struggle to find how we do that when almost every media company, you know, aside from some of the ones in the examples you gave there, have a political slant one way or the yeah, other. Definitely. You know, it, it's a tough thing to break. It is. Um, and also, I think the sentiment happens to bring it back to what you said in relation right at the very beginning when you were talking about, say, Donald Trump mm. and other folks that um, governments like Poland or Hungary. Yeah. Um, it's a thing uh, that is in, global, in religious governments, it's actually the Overton window. The Overton window. Overton window. Okay. Now, what this is, is this is basically the area from which kind of accepted um, public opinion and discourse takes place. Okay. So it's kind of like the kind of Islamic Islamicism, if you like, of, uh, of, of today. So what, and so it, you know, we said we can search for Andrew Marvin interviews about, mm. about the BBC, that's one of those that's worth taking the BBC. Okay. And he made a point about this, he sort of referred to this, this concept, because he said, when that period say the BBC has been its best, or most loved, but periods um, when there's been strong consensus, social consensus about about politics, and right. social identity or other things. He said at that point, everybody was quite happy with the same way as the BBC was going to play in the middle part. Yes. What we've got at the moment is um, opinion diverging rapidly. So therefore, the middle path now seems to be quite distant from a lot of opinion on either side. Right. So therefore, they've got a lot of attacks. I mean, you could probably say that's perhaps a slightly self-congratulatory argument from a senior BBC figure. Yeah. But I think it's an interesting point. But it is. What, what people like, say, Donald Trump, but also increasingly now Sean McCain, are a bit about metropolitan elites and liberal media being yep. banded around by political advisors of his policy. And also on the left, of course, I noticed that Jeremy Corbyn started doing it as well. Exactly right. Um, but what they are trying to do is, is and certainly with, say, Trump in America for the Gay period, is they're trying to shift the Overton what they want to do is they want to take the area where normal, perhaps socially acceptable uh, consensus discussions and ideas take place, and they want to move it. Can you call that lowering the bar? Yeah, if it's nasty. From, from, a, from a simplistic point of view? Yeah, it can be lowering the bar. It depends what you're trying to do. If, yeah. you, if, you, um, if you're trying to say, make racism okay, then you're lowering the bar. Correct. Okay, no charity, and means. is there an opinion in which this Overton window is being shifted the other way? To raise the standard to say we're not going to have this anymore. Do you think that some of that is happening by I, them trying to stick to their guns? I think or? that it has happened. Okay. I think that what has happened in some ways is that I don't think that the what we've got say perhaps going on perhaps with um, perhaps right wing commentators in, in some instances in America and Europe. Perhaps it actually actually happened from the mid nineties onwards when the perhaps the Overton window sort of shifted much to much more liberal positions. Yes. Because then because then we get um, casual racism not okay. Um, homophobia became not okay, and people quite very quickly, perhaps in the UK, the opinion suddenly switched. They were suddenly about people being fine about gay marriage. Yes, these things sort of sort of switched. It happened quite quickly, yeah. right? Seemingly, yeah. Social liberal opinions switched quite, made a big big sort of step into to more liberal positions. Yes, so sort of in the UK, in Europe, and in the states. Yes, um, probably around about yeah, probably around about the end of the nineties. Back then, those ten fifteen years, and they've sort of been playing out. 
subsequently. Um, and maybe would have been a bit of a reacting to try and pull it. Now, it might be a kind of a kind of shift, it might be a kind of shift back to maybe where it was in 1970. Yeah, because I, I read something recently uh, that the Times and the New York Times had done, yeah. and it was an expose on the shift of the EU towards more of this right wing, like we're seeing in places like Hungary, Poland, Spain, yeah. etc., right? Yeah. And what they pointed to by talking to some of the millennium millennials in those in those countries is that actually they're shifting back to yeah. to the more right the right wing side of the yeah. of policy of yeah. speech of nationalism yeah. things yeah. like that and they want to implode the EU because of this agenda pushing towards liberalism pushing yeah. towards overly PC sentiments everything yeah. is a an offense everything is now uh, sort of a, a push to victim culture and things like that. And they're saying, we don't want that. We don't want to be super sympathetic to, you know, all of the migrants coming into our country. We want our country back. And and do you think that that's a little bit of a shift back towards yeah. what that progressive kind of policy or thinking was? Yeah, and also I think it's probably it relied, like you say, I think it's probably impetus of stuff that rounded out the Lisbon danger was actually more, more the more dependence the United States on that because a lot of people, I think what you're seeing is a lot of people feeling disenfranchised. Yeah. Some people feel, feeling that we're going in the same direction, that we're doing an idea of progress and that things are on the whole going to get better, right. and then you don't feel that. Yes. You know, there's always more seem to be that idea that Optimism. things should get better as long as we don't do dumb stuff. Just stick with it and don't yeah. do anything massive to screw this thing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. should keep happily going on. And then it seems to be now not the case. There's a lot of people that are starting to feel very disenfranchised. Yeah. For the first time... Um, for probably well over a hundred years, um, I mean, I'm sure when I look back at it, maybe back to the 1920s, mm. first time you've got a generation growing up that will that have don't have an equivalent expectation to be better off than their parents. Yes, that's right. I think that that is going to change. There is changing stuff, and we are seeing things happening. But I think a lot of this, um, I think perhaps um, politically, a liberal might be coming more through from some of the younger, um, perhaps more perhaps the millennials. But it seems to. On the whole, maybe what I've seen on the whole in terms of on social issues, that seems to have started to start. Yeah. Even though that perhaps because of the bulge of disproportionate number of baby boomers in the West, that there's a lot of um, stigma and a lot of anti Britons in in Europe and America, on perhaps bigotry more than anything. Yeah. Perhaps, because it, it strikes a chord with some of the older generation who felt that you know perhaps didn't fully understand a world. Like a bit of a paradigm shift yeah. under their feet yeah. that had been 20 years ago and never really got their heads around it. Yeah, absolutely. Got their feet tight because the, otherwise they would have seemed a bit out there and. Not well, so it's the old yeah. racist uncle at the barbecue, right? Yeah. It's like, shut up, granddad. You're yeah. from, you know, you're from the yeah, 50s. Yeah. That doesn't play anymore. Yeah. But I, I do agree with that. And I think what people are, what, what this, to me, anyways, what this is showing is a sw- is a shift out of some of these echo chambers. Right, because we know the left and the right—they're not extreme ends; they're neighbors. Yeah. Right, they're effectively neighbors telling a yeah. different story. Right, yeah. but it's effectively the same practice. Yeah. Um, and I feel that as I, you know, I don't define myself as a liberal or a conservative. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, as I think many people would 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 express themselves as, they're a bit of both, yeah. depending on what you're talking about. Yeah. But I think that those progressive ideas, more people are liberal, yeah. and more so becoming liberal. Of marijuana, even in this country now, is picking yeah. up steam, right? Yeah. Some of these things is happening yeah. in America. Yeah. But from a from a fiscal point of view, mm. 
to stay conservative. They want to be conservative now. Mm-hmm. They want their own looked after. They don't want to be handing out to other people, yeah. right? They want everybody to have rights yeah. that are there, yeah. but don't come in and take away from me. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, like a, I don't want to take this. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. it, right? It's like give them what they want, give everybody what they need, but don't take out of my pocket mm-hmm. to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So fiscally, they're becoming much more conservative. Yeah. Socially, they're becoming much more mm-hmm. progressive. Is that a good thing? I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if they're malleable. Yeah. I don't even know if they if they have any gel. You know. No, maybe this is something to do with how our um, democracies work because I know back in the nineties that something that you see um, about the Tony Blair government was that they'd be a focus group and that people when they would ask people what they wanted they wanted European style social provision but they wanted American style taxation <laughs> and, and it didn't have a not a lot of people in the focus groups didn't have a problem articulating that. Yeah, yeah. And of course, which causes if you're in government, it creates an interesting problem because all the heads scratch here. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, it's not where's the money coming from? Exactly. So, and then are you honest with them and say, well, this is where problems about populism perhaps even start from a slightly benign point of view and say, yes. well, you can't have this. Nobody then is prepared to stand up and say, well, actually, you can't have all this. No. You need to pay for it. That's right. And then everybody wants free healthcare, but nobody wants their taxes to go up. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's that's sort of the thing that's happening yeah. in America specifically yeah. now. You know, yeah. because this move for Medicare for all and tuition-free public colleges and things yeah. like that, wiping the student debt out of a trillion yeah. plus. Yeah. You know, things like that. It's like that's all good and well, but you have to have a more nuanced plan than just saying, "Well, we'll tax the rich with the electric point." Yeah. You know, for for Amazon, yeah. you know, ten million earners and plus. Yeah. Right? There's more of that. Everybody's got to take part in paying for those yeah. services. We do here. Yeah. You know, and. I was watching something. I didn't realize this the other day, but like the ability to serve people on the NHS, if you're not from this country but just visiting, is an obligation of the NHS. Mm. But if it's is it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, if it's if it's critical, mm. then it's paid for. But if it's not, then you have to pay for it. Yeah. And there was a story about a woman who couldn't get her baby back. I don't know if you saw this recently. Yeah. And they were talking about the fact that. Uh, she had an accident or something and she miscarried and they wouldn't give her the baby back she couldn't pay 12,000 quid or something like that I don't know how all that, all that works and, 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 and I'm not familiar with the details of no but but, yeah. but again it's like you can't have your cake and eat it too in every scenario and I'm not taking that baby situation okay. as, a, as, a, as an individual I'm talking more about the citizenry of, but that of show, this shows you where there's but a kind of break there is a break right yeah absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. really really interesting mm-hmm. um, okay cool so the, one of the one of the other things I want to talk to you about and busy and, and all that and we're, we're running past the time that I usually do for a show but this is this is really cool um, I want to talk about Julian Assange sure. I want to talk about WikiLeaks I want to talk about the responsibility that they have as a publisher and some of the stuff that's going on with Assange right now sure. yeah so obviously he was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy yeah. for what seven years yeah and this was on a uh, supposed uh, rape allegation from mm-hmm. Sweden but he was fearing extradition to Sweden or to America via Sweden, mm. right? On the uh, mm. the helicopter footage, right? That's yeah. that's what they wanted, mm. right? And now he actually is out of the the embassy. Mm. He's in custody mm. and trying to fight this extradition to America. Yeah, that extradition is on the Hillary email, yeah. which Trump applauded him for mm. during the campaign, yeah. right? But now he's being looked at as an enemy of the state mm. for leaking classified documents. Yeah. Obviously, he didn't leak the classified documents.
but he owns WikiLeaks that publish those documents. So how does a publisher then become entangled in criminal charges for releasing information provided to him by a source? Yeah, now in the UK, I'm not so sure that may be law in America. Of course. But for, in the UK, the rules seem to come to first. A publisher will be held liable for the stories that they publish. Okay. So, an art, so a publisher will be, usually, the publisher will be sued um, over um, piracy, the allegations. Usually, that's usually the case. Not always. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you see it at the weekend that the uh, guys will mail up the uh, rejection. Yes. Bank for two, and two and a half dollars a person, not for the five and That's right. Dollars. That's right. So there's an interesting exactly. development there. He was sued, and sensibly they would sue the they would sue the previous um, publisher. The pre the publisher was the one that ultimately has the um, the final say on what goes in what is published by them. Mm -hmm. um, and the and also as a practical thing as well about it that um, if you ask for something for charity, they're not going to go and dig in. Individual. Individual. Exactly. Exactly. When I worked with Steve, as long as it's all right, I don't want to really spend heaps of people about this. It was good. As long as it's all John Jenkins is, is reported rather than Steve himself. So we have to publish our stuff and we have to be really careful because people will steal what you can steal. Yes. We've seen with this all organisation of people have been done. Easy targets for that. Easy targets. Yeah. No, we need to, we've got to double check. And also at the end of the day, we've got to see if it's got six licensees paying money for the same you know, people publish. We're, we're paying for the lawsuit, basically. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, yeah. Like, it's not up to us to lose large amounts of public money on yeah. uh, on um, frivolous journalism. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, there's always a point on which completely accepted that. Of course. With any organisation I work for, I've always ultimately been protecting the publisher's um, bank balance, ultimately, I guess. I guess, but, but as a result, mm. protecting your credibility yeah. as an institution and your own by yeah. doing the work that we yeah. need to do to verify. Assange is, a, is, a, is an interesting character because in some ways you'd say that he's more traditional publisher or, or journalist because Correct. Assange is always at the computer. He's a hacker. Um, and so this is one of the problems, obviously, with some charities. It's hard to actually back into the problems that they, that they search and criticise about the control of the material on the because as soon as it's automated and as soon as you've got millions of people posting stuff simultaneously, you can't hold these people accountable. Correct. And in terms of WikiLeaks, is it, it, there seems to be an idea out there that he, that he would have somehow been sitting there in some way, because he might have come out of a film or something like that. Dr. Evil or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The guy from Inspector Gadget with a cat in his yeah, arm, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you used to see like, things like, you know, Homeland, I've already just sat down with Dark Woman. That's right. That's right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, point with the answer is they weren't aware of half the stuff that came out because initially they were just waiting for it. So yeah. Was he more busy a publisher in the traditional sense? Probably not. Yeah. Because more of a facilitator. Um, so is he a portal? He's a portal. Right? It's a portal, right? Yeah. Of portals publishers. Now, in some ways, because he's Facebook of how good social media can target for campaigns and um, things like that, and stuff that Twitter has. Um, well, I have a lot of questions also. If you read some, I mean, when you compare his Wikipedia stories or things which have survived opinion, the number of things the Times will start reading down, the number of um, comments that start appearing uh, that they all have, like, don't have, some don't have a photo, but um, or don't also have had like no followers or they're an egg on Twitter, right? Exactly, yeah. that's right. Yeah, exactly. So you see these these things kind of kind of going around. So you can see that there's still still some good behind it. Definitely. So, but. But then perhaps that's not good enough. I'm not sure it's another sort of careful, you can try the argument. 
organisation. But, but ultimately, perhaps these organisations do look at the responsibilities of what they're doing. But again, I think the science thing is a dangerous precedent because at the end of the day, uh, because it, if it is being buried in America, then what's the okay? Saying that they're bad. What does that do for First Amendment rights? Exactly. You know? It's very difficult to, because they're trying to say the easy, easy stuff, which technically is to get around uh, the First Amendment, which is a very, very tricky. Absolutely. Um, and also, when you get secret laws, it then makes you wonder what, how that really end game will actually be. But that's the thing. Yeah. What's the end game? Is it just the, like the erosion of being able to publish honest accounts mm-hmm. of what's going on at the it's it's the whole thing, right? Who's going to govern the governors, right? Who's going to hold the power for mm. them, right? Who's who's going to be in that position? Mm. And that's really where I guess the whistleblower's intention is. Mm. But obviously, Julian Assange specifically has shown bias, mm. right? In in some of his viewpoints, mm. we know he hates Hillary Clinton. We know people like this. We know he has a certain uh, affinity towards you know certain players of the political sphere. Mm. We we understand mm. this, so he is as unbiased as an editorial mm. opinion. Columnist mm. would be first, per, per, perhaps, but he was ultimately given this, and like you said, with the sheer weight of what the information was and how much of it there mm. was, he didn't go through everything. Mm. And I think it's actually actually been documented that he, you know, he decided that he couldn't go through everything, mm. and that's why some of that stuff wasn't redacted. And that's one of the reasons that they're initially coming after him, right? This this putting service people in danger and harm's way, and I get that. I get that, and the, and the due diligence behind releasing information is as paramount as it is for the public mm-hmm. to understand it. Mm-hmm. There has to be some—I don't know what you'd call it—some mediation there to, mm-hmm. to to protect vulnerable individuals. Mm-hmm. But saying that, he's just uncovered a truth, mm-hmm. and that is ultimately what investigative journalist is. Even though he's not a journalist, he's just been given this information mm-hmm. and he's put it out there. So did the Guardian. So did the New York Times, mm. so did the Washington Post, and every other media outlet that could get their hands on it has then subsequently published information about it. Mm. So it's like you're saying, where does that slippery slope stop? Mm. Is he just being held up as a scapegoat and an easy target, mm. or is this starting to become, because we just finished saying, right, there's a bit of a shift back, we think, the other way. Mm. But with something that's going on with mm. Assange, is this actually an erosion of, of how not only we look at journalists, mm. but the fear that's being inflicted in them to do their mm. job properly. I think there's certain stuff, I think there's definitely something in that. I think one of the things that um, is interesting about Assange, I think that what maybe what we're seeing with America, um, maybe it's not that dissimilar to what's been happening over here about the EU, because in some ways it's about being British nation state almost, whereas there's, there's a power share. 100%. And I think, what, I think what, what I mean is this is my hypothesis. Firstly, what really scares me is what scares me in America, perhaps this is the first time where I've suddenly found that there's by modern technology created something perhaps is bigger than the US government and they are freaking out. I agree. I think, I think a lot of this is I'm, it's kind of unfiltered media that might well get sort of panic, right? It's a panic. panic. Yeah. For sure. In the same way that we have things, in the same way that a lot of people in certain the UK have been panicking about the EU because they see it as an erosion of the British nation state. Mm. But then something I thought was very instructive about that, perhaps about social media, was that obviously with um, Jen Zuckerberg not bothering to turn up to the British MP about the potential measures or what they might 
young person like me actually receive a scholarship. Absolutely. They don't care. No, they don't. Um, although just don't see it as important. Like they care. They still bring a fair amount of effort down to undertake and pay attention. But they don't. They don't regard it as important enough to do. To, Always regarded as important enough for him to come and to throw a solution at the problem that is of the weight of the problem, right? Yeah. That's the whole thing, yeah. right? So it's the origin that they say about climate change, right? You yeah. can't have like minuscule steps. You have to tackle this as a solution once it's big as the problem. Yeah. They're not doing that with yeah. this sort of stuff in media. No, also the Facebook crime that was levied in the US this week was uh, reduced to the size that. Well, they're, sh- they're share price on us, didn't they? Yeah. Fun, because obviously the freedom of the market theory is all but that fun. Well, now we can get away with it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You know, and, and ultimately when you've got a company that's making a billion dollars a month, yeah. unless you strictly adhere to, say, the GDPR fine standards, yeah. you're not going to make a dent on any of it. No. You know, if you take 20% of annual profits away, then, okay, cool, or annual revenue away, then yeah. you're going to maybe hopefully make some headway. Yeah. But I feel like they're almost scared to attack these companies, yeah. you know, because of the power that they have and, yeah. and the influence they have and, and so on and so forth. Do you think that Facebook need regulating? Twitter yeah. need regulating? Government regulation? Um, I think they need regulating. I don't think it can be government regulation. You don't think it they're can too be? Big. I think it's going to, and it, they operate in a way that. Um, makes government regulation very, very difficult. Yeah. Even authoritarian uh, um, societies like China and North Korea have trouble beating the internet out. Yeah. So let alone how you're going to try and do that in digital democracy and freedom of rights, it's going to be a big freedom problem. So who does it? I think they're going to, I personally think that they will have to be something possibly akin to like the antitrust um, stuff that was done in America in the uh, late 80s, the early part of the 20th century. Yeah. And something there will have to be an international coming together, and something like that will be done. So you think it'll have to be like an international conglomeration of <clears throat> of individuals and you know thinkers and, 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 and policymakers, or and there will have to be some kind of checks and balances immediately put in. Um, I think that's what will happen. I think it's going to be difficult. There might be a little way off that. Although mm. uh, I'm very optimistic about these things, because I think we're going back to the extreme tension that we have. So I think this is where there will be a bit of a headline. You think this is the loggerhead? Yeah, I think, I think there will be some kind of thing, some kind of dis- um, ultimately sort of disagreement or engagement. I think ultimately it will be thrashed out, and that then that it will be incumbent upon it will be economically expensive for the big these big players in order to police themselves properly because the the consequences will be so great otherwise. Until you get to that point, until it becomes an economic decision, I don't think you can kind of be ultimately controlled. But I think that's. In the same way that we have like the United Nations, in the same way Correct. that we have you know, the trade organisations, which is sort of pigeons that we've been thinking about more <laughs> in the last two years than probably ever in the last ever. hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so but that's um, can't read my back out. Twenty article twenty-four. <laughs> Everybody article does, right? Article um, three B or whatever yeah. it is, right? Um, that I don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever it says. Yeah. Um, Do you know what article C says? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Something will have to be done. An intrinsic political theme, right? As yeah. well. Because it's too easy at that point to, for them to be interfered with. 
well, there's a platform of people that they just disagree with. Yeah. You know, I was one of them. Yeah. You know, I got booted off Facebook about two months ago, three yeah. months ago, yeah. just for uh, posting that I don't think that they should be censoring people like Alex Jones. Mm. I don't believe in deplatforming. Mm. I think that the light shines on everything is better mm. than you know stuff hiding yeah. in the darkness, as it were. Yeah. So I hope you're right, and I hope mm. there. I hope we can come to a loggerhead with these companies and and and, and get some of this discourse worked mm. out. Um, so it, it's going to be really kind of interesting to see you know where it goes and and how it all figures itself out. And I'm sure I'll be much older by the time <laughs> it does. So uh, we'll circle back for part two on that when it all resolves itself. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do proper long form. Um, listen, mate, I don't want to keep you any longer. We've done over an hour. It's been absolutely fantastic. The last thing I want to ask you, because it, it rung a bell to me just while we were talking about the, T, uh, the BBC. What do you think about TV licenses? Do you think that they should be, because obviously the, 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 the most recent thing is they scrapped the over 75 thing, right? Yeah. They're like, no, all the veterans got to pay. This is after D-Day, right? Yeah. And all that stuff. They're like, no, the 75 plus has got to pay for it as well. Yeah. Do you believe in the, in the TV license as a practical a practical policy in today's day and age with things like OTT, Netflix, all this other good stuff? Mm. Or do you, like me, think that the BBC needs to come to the market the way everybody else does now? And either they put up and shut up via an ad model or they do more of a Netflix subscription. Because they have all of these products, right? They got BBC Radio, they got their podcast, they've got their news, they've got their international news, they've got their documentary angle, they got all these different things. But I don't watch a lot of it. But I'm I'm it's incumbent upon me to pay my TV license or I'm a criminal, right? Wanna get your thoughts on that and then we're gonna
feel like my new year's new year is a little bit more appropriate than planning. Yeah, exactly. It's a little bit like that. So you um, kind of just hold a mirror up a little bit, right? Yeah, Tell yeah. yourself to an I mean, extent, but it obviously does to a certain degree if you're having an issue with a big massive institution you say talk to a few people and ask them what you okay but yeah. sometimes the institutions aren't necessarily bad no they talk to probably put a lot more money in the uh, individual institutions rather than talking a bit more money definitely but so yeah it's i'm very motivated so i'm probably saying very poorly i like it i like it no no, no, no i like it i like it because I, I come from it from, from a perspective where it's just like i've never played a tv like mm. growing up in canada or no, any of that true. sort of stuff it's, like, it's a completely foreign mm. thing to me that you have to pay for to have a license mm. to have um, especially when you have the services available now. Yeah. And I, I just feel like truly that, you know, whatever that <clears throat> sort of social cohesion may have been, I don't think that BBC plays necessarily in that realm as much as maybe they used to, and, and I might be wrong on that. Mm. Um, but I feel that with any business now, it's it's sort of a, a kind of a put up or shut up. Either you're worth mm. people wanting to pay for your service, and if they're not, then you better get some ad breaks on you. Because yeah. that's, that's the value exchange that we mm. now have with things like, social media, mm. digital media in any way, shape, or form, video content, subscription fee, you know, anything like that. You either you see, even on apps, right? You either mm. see the ads or you pay for premium, yeah. right? One or the other, so. Yeah. I think the only way that we will would be to drop the income justifiably, and this is really tricky, because we're talking about talking earlier about mm. kind of the breakdown of consumption. Yeah. We can use the obviously consumers as the definitive um, sort of blooming uh, criticism. Yeah. But if you feel that you're getting the best new service in the world, then it's probably worth continuing. But yeah. it's very, very difficult to maintain um, service like Fresh Ends are at the moment. That's because of some of the fact some of the type of critiques in the UK plan. And I think we've got that capability particularly with Ray. Yeah. But also that um, also that in the time of a great breakdown of social consensus it's very, very hard for any organisation to keep everybody happy all the time. Yeah. Because the irony is that we could keep nobody in this situation right now could keep nobody happy any of the time. We couldn't do it right now. <laughs> but that's, yeah. not, that's not very sustainable. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, listen, mate, I'm going to let you get out of here. I really, really appreciate you coming in. You are our first interview, episode 100. I couldn't imagine having anybody else. Um, I think it was really good. Um, and you're my actual first interview. So, uh, you know, breaking down uh, breaking down barriers and all that for me personally as well. So thanks, um, thanks for coming in, Jim. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll do it again soon. Yeah. Definitely. Cheers, guys. <laughs>